This is an Age of Sigma podcast, which may contain explicit language. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 8 of Mortally Wounded. I'm your host Chris Welfare. And today, it's not really a full episode, but what it is, is I'm releasing the six minisodes that Dan from AOS Shorts had me appear on as a guest, where we talk through each of the General's Handbook 2017 scenarios. We talk through the scenarios in detail, kind of discussing army builds, tips and tricks for playing each of the scenarios. So I thought I'd just release all of the six episodes here together in one go on my feed, just in case anybody wants to listen to it all in one go. So I hope you like it, and we'll be back with a proper episode shortly. So thanks for listening. So, starting at the sort of high level, like I think both many of the podcasts around the scene now have gone through the General's Handbook 2017 scenarios and the changes that they come through. So, certainly I've covered it in the previous list building shows on AOS Shorts and in the Masterclass shows about the things which impact on list design. So, having uh, at least one large unit normally. 20 plus models or so for the couple of objectives that require that um, and a couple of other things like behemoths being useful in one of the one of the new scenarios so there are it seems to me four ways of sort of looking at the new scenarios and a way of comparing and contrasting them and assessing what you would need to take into account and there the, do- the deployment zones different structures at the start, the distances between the armies, because that's relevant to how close Alpha Strike armies can close, or how quickly Alpha Strike armies can close the gap, um, how objectives are captured, when objectives are scored, so your turn or any turn, um, and whether or not the value of objectives increases over time, i.e. is there a favour for a late game play. So... Unless, did you have any sort of comments about uh, the scenarios at a general high level at this point before we dive into each individual scenario? I think you did a pretty good uh, job of covering the uh, kind of differences there. Um, certainly, I guess, additional considerations to, to think about when designing a list um, compared to, I guess, the General Sandbook 2016 um, scenarios. The only real one um, in terms of difference is behemoths, obviously counting for the um, kind of heroes. Um, I guess what was the old three places of power is now behemoths can score um, rather than just heroes. And yeah, the 20 plus models, everything else, I think, to be honest, you still probably design a list in a similar fashion that you would have done before in terms of the things you need to consider, bodies, resilience, speed, um, all, all those kind of things are still prevalent um, in terms of designing a list and considering obviously all local meta as well and at what level I guess you want to compete and who you're competing against. Um, I don't think the scenarios really change that. Um, It's more the general shift in points and battalions changes I think that have more of an impact on that rather than the scenarios. I definitely agree. I was uh, taking the temperature a bit internally um, within our local scene about what we think the impact of the scenarios are on this and yes there are some differences but there's more similarities um, than the differences so a lot of the same old wisdom and uh, principles apply 
So let's kick it off with the first scenario in the book. So the first scenario for match play in the book is knife to the heart. Here groans on the internet. Um, it's probably not one of the more favoured of the new scenarios, um, but definitely worth dealing with. So knife to the heart is similar to the take and hold scenario under General's Handbook 2016. So it's a diagonal deployment setup. You've got to set up only nine inches um, away from enemy territory. So you're going to be 18 inches apart from the enemy at the start of the game. There are two objectives which are brought over. They're placed 20 inches in from each deployment corner. So they're sitting deep within the diagonal deployment of each player. In terms of how you capture those objectives, capturing is determined at the end of any turn. So not just your turn. And they are captured by having five or more models from any number of units within six inches of that objective and no enemy models within six inches. So to achieve a major victory, major victory can be scored from battle round three onwards if you control both objectives. Um, if you don't succeed in controlling both objectives, then otherwise you get a minor win on kill points. So this is sort of, this like take and hold has got a reputation for being a hard objective to get a major victory in, simply because of the, of the difficulty it can be to shift an opponent off their home objective in order to not just simply contest it, but take that objective and seize it. So as I think it was Tom Maudsley mentioned on a recent Facehammer episode, it can be worth, if you're really trying to win the tournament, then it can be worth considering how you're going to achieve a major objective, a major victory in this scenario in order to set yourself apart from the field. So, Chris, um, looking at this scenario, what does it favour in terms of army strengths and weaknesses, and what should people being taking should what should people take into account on the tabletop? Yeah, so I mean. It's kind of in the name, really, take and hold. It's the, the sorts of armies that will do well or typically can cope better with it are what I would call kind of a hammer and anvil force. So you've got roughly half of your army is a defensive um, kind of core, and then the other half is mobile and offensive. Um, so just to kind of pull two Stormcast formations out, you've got a hammer strike force, which can kind of be safe, teleport down, hit quite hard. Um, in as your um, offensive half, and then say like a Thunderhead Brotherhood, which just consists of liberators and adjudicators, which can sit on your home objective um, and defend that against enemy threats. That's typically what you're looking for um, in this scenario, because you need to obviously be able to defend yours from getting enemy any enemy models within six inches, but you're also going to have to clear off anything that they leave defending theirs. Um, so that's why it's quite hard because if you do build your list that way and your opponent doesn't build their list in that manner and potentially just takes a fully defensive force with no hope really of ever trying to come for yours, um, then actually those hammer and anvil forces can struggle a little because you're only applying 50% of your army versus 100% of the defending army. So then actually nobody wins and sometimes the defending army will actually win on a minor victory because they've been able to use 100% of their army 
to kind of wrap around and take down 50% of an opponent's army. So it's it's the reason it causes a lot of issues in terms of getting the major um, for a lot of players and a lot of army builds. Um, yeah, there's, there's certainly that challenge because if you are going for that more mixed arms force, so you've got a, a couple of components, then you've got exactly that challenge uh, that you identify that it's just too easy for a more defensive or resilient player to just sit back and go, well, I'm going to defend my home turf. I've got some range threat in my army. So I'm just going to make sure I pick off enough of your army so that I'm going to stay ahead on victory points and I'm going to take the minor and we can wrap the game up in an hour or so. Yeah. Um, it's also something where you can get kind of, it can actually be a scenario that's quite strong for armies that basically win just by tabling their opponents or certainly destroying a lot of their opponent's forces. For example, Carriage and Overlords, um, kind of the clown car, because that is a particular army that can apply almost 90% of the points of the army into a concentrated area to absolutely destroy it, but then can be highly mobile with a few troops to suddenly shoot back to a home objective. So it could be risky, but it, it's an army that can actually leave your home objective completely undefended to use your entire army to destroy your opponent and then just shoot back the five models that you need to claim your home objective while the rest of your army is on your opponent. So um, th there is quite a few different kind of approaches to this. Um, obviously, it is one that due to needing at least five models, on both objectives, elite armies like Beast Claw Raiders can really struggle with this um, this scenario, just because if they are taking multiple Stonehorns, Thunder Tusks, um, and Mournfang cavalry, it's really hard to actually have ten models alive with five on each. Um, but they have formations that can potentially get around that, like the Skull, where they can delay um, the ambush of a hunter and at least two packs of Saber Tusks, which is exactly five models. So it's something where, again, a Beast Claw Raiders army potentially can use 90% of its actual, all of the models on the table to push for an objective. And then when it gets to turn three, just pop up a skull on their home objective. Um, and I know it's something that's been done by a player here, and they've won it because their opponent got about the skull. And uh, they were able to just pop up five models onto their home objective at turn three and win the game. Genius. I like that. Um, thinking about the Alpha Strike lists, and we touched on Caradron Overlords, and it's that ability to have an Alpha Strike that then can move and redeploy. So the whether you're using Grapnels or you just got the sheer mobility of the Balloon Boys to get yourself back, or you're really going, well, I'm going to use 90% of the force. So I've got two drops if you're using Clown Car. Um, I'll leave my 10 Arcanaut company on my home objective and the whole rest of my army is going to deploy out of um, the Ironclad or the Frigate um, and go for, your, go for your home objective from the start. Yeah, it's, it's something, again, that murder hosts, they should quite like this scenario because you can leave five Flesh Hounds um, on your home objective while 90, 120 blood letters run forwards, pinning your opponent on their half of the board and basically just running in, killing them and slowly killing them until 
it's just blood letters on theirs and then five flesh hounds on yours. So, um, yeah, there's, there are lots of ways to win the major. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be a, a draw, actually, as often as um, it can be. But it, it is certainly the hardest, I think, to get the major on if your opponent wants that sort of game. I think if both players are trying to get the major, then I think one person will get the major. But I think if one player isn't ever going to really try and go for the major, then that's when you kind of it does become hard to get a major. Yeah, it's almost like the old uh, situation under fan, Aethid Fantasy, which was that if you've got an army that's corner hammering um, and really just going for a 10-10 or a draw or something like that, then it can actually be disadvantageous for you to try and push for the push for the win because you'll go big and then you might fall up short because you get some bad dice rolls or um, you overexpose yourself and you lose the minor victory as a result. Yep, definitely. And I've seen that happen. Um, I've, I've definitely seen that happen where somebody has tried to push and they've been taken down because of it and lost the game. So a lot of this is, if we're trying to give advice to players about how they're making this assessment, then it's a case of going, well, look, how is the opponent engaging with this? What's in their army? Have they got the ability to get across the board to threaten my home objective? Or are they a very slow movement army? So they're likely to just go, nope, we're just going to stay where we are because it's not worth us trying. Because that will give you an indication about how you should approach the game. Um, to decide whether it's worth trying to push for the major or whether it's just consolidating a minor victory is what you should be going from. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it's better to at least get a win if you if you look at it and you come up against 90 plague bearers um, and you know that they've got nothing that ambushes, they're just planning on sitting here, then you want to probably just fringe with your units as well. If you have ranged units, just keep at your range and just shoot even if it's low model even if it's low kill points um at the end of the day if if that's kind of the way that they're going to play it and you want to get the win if you charge 50 percent of your army in you are not going to kill every single model they will kill you on kill points so you have to just as you say during setup see what they have in their army see if there's any late game alpha strike threats See if it's offensive list, see if it's an aggressive list, and you have to just make your decision on how you need to play the game based on what is in your list. Yeah, definitely. And you you should take into account what the what the differences in threat range are, um, if in terms of missile or range troops. Because if you've got something like Judicators or Colonel Hunters on your side, then you as you say, you can afford to sit out of range of their army and just pick things off. Um, to go for that squeaky win, as it were. The other thing that I've, um, being a Sylvaneth player, the other thing that I've occasionally taken into account is that if my ranged threat has actually had more success than I anticipated and there's there's potentially an opening, then I might consider going for a sneaky turn four or turn five late teleport across the board just to try and... um, put the pressure on and try and seize a major. But of course, you've got to take into account, are you going to be throwing away the minor? Is there a genuine opportunity there? 
in the in the dynamics of the tournament that you're in are you on the top tables how are the other players going if you've got that information you might decide right it's worth having a push i'll go for a late um a late game win to try and get the major in turn five um i had that one tournament last year um say last year earlier this year um where thanks to a sneaky teleport and a range of a long line of dryads snaking out from a wood. Um, I managed to seize the home objective straight out of uh, my opponent's nose. Um, but it's got to be one of those things where you've got to play by ear in those late turns. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, it's it's that scenario that um, it's it's one of those ones where it's more just seeing it. I think if you have the time and it's late game as you say it's is there a cheeky opportunity here but again that all comes down to list design because if you don't have a list that has that ability to suddenly teleport like tree revenants in the silver net list um or maybe some liber- liberators in a vanguard wing um even if it's not the 30 liberator unit that is becoming commonplace even if it's just five um that your opponent may have forgotten about um you can just sit there back and suddenly drop them in um but it's going to be assessing um assessing whether there are those opportunities and sometimes they present themselves and sometimes they don't um it's just trying to be able to read um i guess what your opponent's army can do to yours yeah and i wouldn't i wouldn't underestimate the the human element which is that by the time you get to game five of something which like in this scenario has been sort of just chipping away there's almost an agreed consensus that we're both trying to go for the minor you might find your opponent has let their guard down. They've just left just enough room for you to be able to teleport across or move models into a threatening position. So if you're trying to defend against that, then you've got to be very aware of how can my how could my opponent potentially sneak onto my home objective? Have I made sure that I've closed everything off? Is there no way that they can um, use any movement or redeployment shenanigans? to drop suddenly into my lines on turn five. Yeah, I I also, just as a personal preference, kind of, I think this is not a good scenario to be the last game in a tournament, um, just because it can tend to, it has the um, potential to lead to a bit of a non-game if somebody has got, say, four major wins up to that point and then they come across this is their last game. If they have an opponent that isn't going to take theirs, like Nurgle, this is exactly what actually happened um, with me at RCGT last year. This was the last game, and I had four major wins going up to it, and my opponent had a Nurgle horde, wasn't going to come to my objective. So I just knew that if I got the minor win, then I'd win because I'd be the only person with five wins. So all I had to do was just shoot and just be 18 inches away shooting him or game while he took his models off um and it was kind of like it was great that it took the pressure off um in terms of me playing for the tournament but it also did feel like a bit of a non-game um because i knew all i have to do is get a minor so there was no incentive for me to actually push for the major if it's the last game i think it's good um if it's the first game because it's that first round where a lot of the a lot of the uh, games kind of will end up in minors 
that if you can push out a major, it kind of gives you a leg up at the start of the tournament. Yeah, and it's also not going to... Um, it's, it's interesting having it in the first round because what it means then is that, yes, it's going to give a slight boost to the players who can play really well and have got strong lists that can take the major, but it's not going to unduly balance it, unbalance it because you're then going to face someone else who's got a major or um, a list which has got a minor but with a lot, a lot of kill points if that's your um, your secondary factor for um, for pairings as it were, for matchups. So actually, that's quite a good way of um, dealing with the intricacies of that scenario and trying to get a um, fun game for all the players at the tournament. Cool. Uh, well, unless you had any other further comments or gems of wisdom on Knife to the Heart, um, I was proposing we were going to move on. Yeah, no, I think um happy to move on. Great. Cool. Okay, the next scenario that we're going to be covering off is Total Conquest. Um, I always want to, every time I write this, I always want to um, do it in all caps with multiple exclamation marks after it. I just feel it's appropriate for the name of the scenario. Um Total Conquest is infamous, shall we say, for the rather challenging deployment map, um, which, if you're certainly like me, takes you about three or four times in order to read um, read the words in the General's Handbook and actually work out what it means for deploying on the tabletop. Um, so let's get into it. Um, it's a bit of a challenging deployment zone. Um, and I'm going to make a comment here for one of my good friends, um, Andy Long, who's at Go Long Design on Twitter. And he has done, and I'll put it in the show notes and um, links up on aosshorts.com, but he's done a revised map for Total Conquest with all of the measurements that you need on the map. Um, so I think it's a much better version than the one that you get default in the book. Um, so... But you'll see that when we talk about uh, the key factors in here. So the deployment zone, it's a zigzag deployment zone. Effectively, zigzags across the middle of the board. You've got to set up nine inches away from enemy territory. So where your deployment zone is, is, is also going to zigzag, mirroring that center line. And so you're going to be 18 inches apart from the enemy. There are four objectives. Four objectives are in the quarters of the board. So they're 12 inches deep and 18 inches wide from the board edge. So in the center of each board quarter. In terms of capturing those objectives, you capture at the end of any turn. And this is the first scenario where we get a new one of these capturing mechanics. This is that a unit of 20 or more models um, will capture if they're within six um, inches of the objective and if there's no enemy unit of 20 plus models within six inches. So the 20 plus model unit acts as a trump and you only need to have one model from that 20 man unit within six inches of the objective for it to count. If there are no 20 man units anywhere near the objective, then it's the most models within six inches. A unit recognizing that this incentivizes you to have these large units snaking across the board, then the counter of that is that a unit can only contribute towards scoring a single objective each turn. 
So if you've got 60 zombies, you can't string them across and capture two objectives at once. The final point to note about capturing them is that they're what's sort of colloquially referred to as tap and go objectives. So if you've captured the objective, you can then move off and you will hold that objective until the enemy captures it from you. How does it come through on um, victory point scoring? You get one point scored for each objective that you control at the end of your player turn, um, but you get two points if you've taken it from your opponent that turn. So if they held it at the start of the turn and you've seized it, you get two points instead of one. In terms of determining victory, it's relatively simple. Major win goes to whoever's got the most victory points. If you're tied on victory points, then it goes down to kill points. So Chris, what do people need to take into account for Total Conquest? Um, I might just quickly start with the deployment because I know it is something that uh, can take a very long time when setting up for this because, as you say, it, it does look very confusing when you set it up. Um, and you often see case people... Has I was just going to say, you often see people just there with like about 60 dice lined up across the um, table trying to work out where nine inches away is. Um, but I think we were having the discussion earlier that you've got some handy and practical tips for people on how they set up. Yeah, so if you look at the actual map in the General's Handbook, there's a dotted, kind of a dashed line that goes in a straight zigzag across the board. So it's 12 inches up the side, and then it goes 24 inches across, 12 inches up, 24 inches across, 12 inches up and then 24 inches across. So if you have a long ruler or anything like that, you can lay that down on the table, and then the deployment zones are just nine inches away from that line. So I personally have loads of whippy sticks, just the kind of 18-inch measuring sticks that came in the starter set, um, and other ones from the old Warhammer days um, that I've cut up into nine-inch sections. So I just lay a load of them out along the middle, um, and when I pointed that out to one of my friends that had played it before me, saying, oh, this is a nine meter setup, I sort of said, no, you just line this up here, and then it's nine inches away from that line. They were like, oh, that's actually not confusing. Um, and it has really helped kind of speed up people setting up for that scenario, certainly in the local scene here. So just in case anyone's not aware of that, it, it can be a point to help speed up your deployment time and get you more game time. Now, there's, there's some great advice. We're always looking for tips in order to get um, time-efficient games through. Cool. So in terms of, I guess, strengths and weaknesses that um, you should be looking for in your army and in your opponent's army to exploit um, with this scenario is, as you mentioned, it's nine inches from that line. So potentially you're only 18 inches away from your opponent at the start of the game rather than the traditional 24. So this naturally will favour armies that are a bit slower in movement. And with that restriction, um, sorry, not restriction, with the additional um, kind of trump objective scoring from 20 plus model units, obviously it does favour horde armies, but really those armies that are resilient as well. So kind of 30 man Nurgle um, plague bearer units can be very strong in this scenario because although they only have movement four, because you're starting closer to your opponent's objectives, it kind of makes up somewhat for their lack of movement. Um, and it also can be favourable 
to let your opponent go first in this because of the fact that you score two points if you take it from them. So previously in scenarios, you'd probably want to go first, grab the objectives, and then make your opponent kind of have to do the work. And then when they claw it back, they're only catching up with you. Whereas now, if you go first turn, try and grab all of the objectives, you're not going to probably have a secure hold on all of those objectives. You might just have a 10-man chaff unit or something holding one or even two of them. And that can actually be detrimental to your game. If your opponent can then in their first turn outnumber you, kill your chaff unit, take that objective, because they're not just scoring one to become even with you as they would have done under previous scenarios, they're actually going to go ahead of you and you'll have had the same number of turns. So this is this is one where you probably want to let your opponent, if you get the choice, go first if they do take those objectives, because um, it can give you a real advantage. Yeah, and it's one of those things that you... If you are the person who has been given the first turn, it then affects, well, how am I going to take this objective? How am I going to take this objective in a way and with enough force that I can withstand the counterpunch? Because otherwise I'm just giving my opponent the extra points and the extra leg up in the scenario that I don't have to do. So don't just go, oh, yes, that's an easy capture. I'll just put my five-man unit there, which is immediately going to then be blown off the next turn. Yeah. I think this is one where if you have an alpha strike with a lot of your army, then potentially you can um, take um, objectives in your opponent's territory with it because, say, with a hammer strike, typically you're probably dropping in 20 paladins. That's quite a lot of models to shift um, and can do a lot of damage, so they probably will be able to hold an objective for a little while. Um, But if not, it could be something where if you're given first turn, you may be rather than rushing a few units towards to maybe just snag an objective to lose it next turn, you actually decide to just push forwards into kind of the middle of the board towards your opponent's objective, but in a big wall. So you essentially create a buffer from your opponent charging your home objectives, as I like to call them, in their turn, so that you solidify your position on your objectives, blocking off your opponent's route to get to yours, so that in the next turns, you can go in with a larger unit and try and take control of theirs. Meanwhile, yours are held safe. Um, defending can even just be a case of moving your units so that you create circles out from the objective so that the back of your bases are just within the scoring range of the objective, so six inches, and the front of your bases are not within. Therefore, if you get charged by something that is a very strong combat alpha strike, for example, 30 blood letters, as long as you're in a tight circle and they aren't able to pile in any of their bases within that range, even if they completely wipe you out in combat, they can't actually score that objective that turn because they won't have any models within six. Yeah, that's very good advice. And what I'm also thinking about when you say that is when you set up rings, you've always got to think about opponents that can move past or over those rings. So if you're dealing with against flyers, and normally there's a way that you can, if you were playing against someone who had like a large Skyfire unit or something like that, there are there are ways you can set up those rings so that there isn't room for your opponent to land inside without charging you. Um, so yes, there's there's a range of things that you can do in terms of where that placement is that 
even if you get wiped out, then they're not going to be capturing it that turn. Yep. Um, I think the other point to note is that because of the the tap-and-go kind of nature of the objectives, um, is that this can actually favour Death Star um, armies. Um, and by that, I mean an army that is typically built around one powerhouse unit that has multiple buffs, um, and it is built to kind of be usually survivable as well as highly um, damaging if not survivable just because it hits first, kills everything, and moves on. Um, so because you can essentially tap and go, you can apply your Death Star to one objective that your opponent holds, completely destroy everything they have near that objective, it's yours, and then you push your Death Star onto the next objective where the next chunk of their army is, and you wipe that off. Meanwhile, you've killed everything in the vicinity, so they're not able to recapture that objective from you, and your Death Star can just move around the board from objective to the next objective to the next objective, slowly wiping your opponent out while you're scoring without actually having any models wasted by holding objectives. Yeah, that was certainly something that I used to do with my Konoth Hunters. Uh, six Konoth Hunters with sides sort of hit that um, bracket of a Death Star or Hammer unit that is free to wipe something off, clear it, and then move on at enough speed to challenge the next objective, especially if you've got your woods in the right places. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great example with the teleporting. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover on Total Conquest? No, I think that's that's probably the main ones, as you say. Um, any flying units you do need to be aware of if you are going for the rings, um, just making sure people can't jump over. Um, also be aware of Zinch um, doing things like splitting horrors. Um, if they have pinks and snaking those horrors, um, if they potentially can split a large unit, um, and just or anything death actually can be a very cheeky one um, for this. Death doesn't tend to get a lot of love, but with their banners bringing back um, D6 models on lots of your basic guys, like your zombies and your skeletons and things like that, remember that when they bring those models back in the hero phase, there's no restriction on where they place them other than keeping one inch coherency to the unit. So if you've got a unit of, say it was 20 or 30, but it's taking, you've damaged it, so you're not worried about them being able to take an objective back off you by outnumbering you. If they suddenly roll a 5 or a 6 on their D6, that brings them back up to 20 plus models. When they bring those models back, they potentially can snake them using the one inch spacing between each of those resurrected guys to get one model within six and just take an objective off you that you weren't expecting. So that's probably the one other thing to just bear in mind. That's a very good point. Um, I always find myself, whenever I play Zinch, just sitting there and thinking and going, right, okay, where are all the possible places that they can put horrors if I attack them? Um, am I going to shoot myself in the foot by giving him the ability, him or her, the ability to put new horrors somewhere that's could be terribly inconvenient for me. Cool. Let's move on to the next scenario. So the next scenario is duality of death. So this is commonly considered to be similar to three places of power. Um, it's a central rectangular deployment zone, 12 inches from the side and you're 12 inches deep. So you're in the middle of the board on your board edge. You're going to be sitting up 12 inches away from enemy territory, so it's your standard 24 inches apart. You've got two objectives this time, both on the center line, 18 inches in from the board edge. So you're being forced into the middle of the board. 
In terms of capturing, this isn't units, this is heroes or behemoths. They're the ones that can control objectives. The You control at the end of any move is the next thing. So it's any move, but not retreats. So the moves that are then going to count are your standard move, a run, a charge, or a pile-in. So those are the moves that would count. Um, what isn't going to count is a setup. So armies which have got special setup rules, like uh, Stormcast Eternals, Fire Slayers, Sylvaneth, you really need to be aware that you're not going to be capturing if you're setting up near one of these units. The first hero or behemoth to arrive at the objective will control it. If the controlling model is then slain by an enemy hero or behemoth within um, three inches of the objective, then that enemy hero or behemoth will gain immediate control of the objective. Additionally, any non-behemoth -hero, non hero, so important distinction there, so it's only heroes which aren't behemoths, will heal wounds equal to the number of VPs they score that turn um, if they are holding that objective. So how do we think about the scoring in this scenario? Well, the VPs are scored at the end of your turn. So they're not, you don't score points at the end of your opponent's turn. And the number of points that you score are equal to the number of turns that of control that that model has controlled the objective. So if that model has been controlling that objective for two of your turns, then they score two victory points. In terms of the overall major win, it's most victory points. Simple as that. Minor win goes down to kill points if you're tied. So, Chris, um, let's kick us off again. What are the things that we need to take into account if we're playing Duality of Death? Well, it's obviously that your list needs to have heroes, behemoths, um, preferably ones that are resilient. Um, the obvious choice comes to mind of Stardrakes tend to be very strong in this um, scenario with Staunch Defender and a Mirror Shield um, because they are very tough to kill. They have a pretty decent move turn one and they can fly onto that objective and then sit there all game. The reason you want resilient heroes rather than just lots of heroes, um, although lots of heroes does help, is because of the cumulative scoring. So obviously you'll score more points with that hero the more turns you hold it with them rather than just having cheap hero go on, get killed, score you one point, go on with another one, get one point. If someone can just keep one hero alive for three turns, they'll actually get six points. So that's something to obviously bear in mind um, based on that. The other thing that I think is a big difference between three places, there's the old scenario, and this is there's actually quite a lot of difference in only having two objectives three objectives um, because you don't necessarily need that many heroes um, because three inches is actually quite a small control zone so you don't just because you don't have a hero there it doesn't mean that that objective kind of is lost you could still use the rest of your army just by putting bodies onto that objective similar to as we discussed with the last scenario creating rings using one inch spacing between your units to just increase their footprint on the tabletop. You might not have any hope of scoring that objective, but you can make it unscorable for your opponent because they physically won't be able to get a hero or behemoth within three to capture it. 
So if you've got just one resilient hero that you can get onto one objective, that can easily be enough to win you this scenario um, just by blocking them from getting the other. No, that's definitely right. So if you've got something that's, as you say, you can divide up your forces, so you've got a sort of protection force around your resilient hero to give them a bit of support, but the whole rest of your army is going to be sitting on um, that other objective, making sure that they can't get a hero close enough in order to claim it. Yeah, obviously, as much as one hero can be enough, two is always better, two or more, hero or behemoth, um, because if you have a, a particular build that lets you have two heroes or two behemoths that can be resilient or protected, then obviously if you can get into a position turn one to claim both of those objectives and prevent them from your opponent, then it's just going to make it even more of an uphill struggle for your opponent to try and claw back those points. Because once you've had two people sitting on an objective for even the first two turns of the game, you're on six points and your opponent's on none. They've got a lot of work to do to try and come back from that. So things like fire slayers, um, tunneling up, um, kind of a runesmith tunneling up, um, 30 Volkai Berserkers. Although, yes, the runesmith won't actually score the turn he tunnels up onto the objective because it's set up as you sit the board rather than a move, you're still in a good position wrapped by 30 Volkai Berserkers, which is a lot of bodies that are quite resilient to defend that person. Now, obviously, that isn't going to work in all cases. If your opponent has quite a strong ranged army, they'll be able to just ignore the Volkites and shoot your hero. Yes, that still means that they can't get a hero onto it. Um, so if they're able to do that one turn before you score, then you're both at zero, but it still is preventing them getting someone onto it. Um, so that is just one kind of scenario where that could be, um, that could be good. Um, armies that have lots of fairly cheap um, but reasonably resilient foot heroes in them for cheap um, as part of a normal army so that you're not adjusting your army build just for one scenario but it's part of your standard army that you've written to compete in any of the scenarios. Things like Stormcast Eternals generally they all have three up save so if they're within the vicinity of Staunch Defender or they can get into cover because it's only a 40 mil base they'll all be sitting there with two up saves. So unless your opponent can do mortal wounds, they're fairly safe. They're probably in your army anyway because Stormcast generally rely on lots of support characters or can be made stronger by lots of support characters. They'll probably be in your list anyway, so it just helps you with this scenario. The other thing that I was going to mention was just being careful at list design stage because not all monsters are behemoths. Uh, not all behemoths are monsters. So while this model uh, you might think is a behemoth, it might not be. Um, it's also worth thinking about that when looking at your opponent's force, because there are some things which you might think is a behemoth hero, but isn't. Um, and so therefore, if they're on an objective holding it, then they're also going to be um, gaining wounds or healing wounds each turn based on how many VPs that they are scoring. So you might want to put some more firepower into that model to make sure it's really, truly dead, um, rather than leave it on a couple of wounds, only to then heal back up. Okay. Um, was there anything else that we needed to cover on this one, Chris? Um, it can be, just because of the central um, rectangular kind of deployment, um, it forces that 12-inch gap to the side of your initial setup, which actually means that 
certain armies that like to tunnel up or lightning strike in. Um, pretty much all of those are restricted to being nine inches away. So most people are probably used to being able to set up against that kind of alpha strike, just by meaning that you can put a little chaff unit nine inches from a corner, you can put another one nine inches away, and then you've basically protected yourself. But because it forces your deployment zone 12 inches in from the board edge, potentially armies that have those alpha strikes, they're able to use that a bit more, so they can pop up straight away right at the side, um, and they'll be nine inches away, but to the side, um, which a lot of armies, you tend to have a front-facing deployment rather than wanting to, I guess, have guys kind of wrapped around to the side. Whereas this can mean that you have to deploy your army more, um, a bit more cleverly, I guess, um, and not as advantageously as you might like in order to prevent an alpha strike being more effective against you. Yeah, so there's there's always the thing that needs to be taken into account with these, which is, yes, that's what's going to be there. Um, those are going to be the factors which are taken into account for victory point scoring. But if you've got an Alpha Strike army or a Zilfin Clown Car or <laughs> something like that, then you might still play the game in the exact same way in that uh, if all the opponent's heroes are dead, then they're not going to be capturing objectives. Um, so you don't need to zone out and various other things. Yeah, exactly. Um, even if you don't score a single point until turn five, if you've spent your game killing their heroes and stopping them getting the, on the objectives, then one point in turn five wins you a major win. So it's just something to consider is how your opponent is going to use their army to try and achieve the goal in the scenario and how your army stack up against it. Yeah, the one of the points you touched on earlier was the importance that if you've got a couple of resilient heroes is getting on those objectives turn one and then racking up the point score. Uh, so you're making it harder and harder for your opponent to come back from. Now, that may be the case and your opponent might not be able to come back, but I wouldn't, if you were the opponent faced with that, I wouldn't give up heart because if you can bring them down by turn three, trying to do a bit of mental maths in my head as I'm going. Um, but if you might be able to bring them down by no later than turn three, start of turn three, then as long as you can then hold for the remainder of the turns, you might be able to catch up. So it's still worth pushing through to the end. Yeah, it has to be done. You'd have, If they claimed both, you'd have to kill both by your turn three and make sure you were scoring from your turn three. Um, and you'd have to score until the end of the game in order to draw on points, so you'd need to beat them in victory points in that in that scenario. So it just shows that if you can take turn one in the scenario with two heroes or behemoths and make them survive for three turns, then you win the game. Yes, just thinking through that, that's it shows again one of the differences between this and three places of power. Because with three places of power, yes you didn't have the cumulative you didn't have the cumulative scoring um pressure from the start of the game and by having three objectives then if late game you had three mobile heroes then you could rack up enough points to um, overtake an opponent who say had just held two objectives for the start of the game um, so 
it is just more and more critical in the scenario in order to take that first turn and get those models on. Yep. Very good. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Okay, so the next scenario is Battle for the Pass. So this is Border War from General's Handbook 2016, but with a twist. And that twist is lengthways deployment. Um, so rather than going across long edges against each other, you're going across short edges against each other. So in terms of distance, you're setting up 12 inches away from enemy territory. So again, you're 24 inches apart, um, although you turn sideways. There are four objectives, similar to Border War, that are placed in the four corners. So 18 inches deep and 12 inches wide from the board edges. In terms of holding those and capturing those objectives, you control at the end of any of your turns. This is another one of the new scenarios where a unit of 20 plus models will trump um, and hot capture that objective, even if there's only one model within range of the six inches of that objective. If there's no 20 plus model units, then it's most models within six inches. Those units can only, a unit can only contribute towards scoring a single objective each turn. And again, these objectives are tap and go objectives. So if you capture it, you will hold it until the enemy takes it off you. In terms of scoring, scoring is similar um, to Border War in that you get one point for holding your objective in your deployment zone. You get two points for each of the central objectives, the ones on the lines between the territory, and you get four points if you manage to capture your enemy's deployment zone objective. So there's nine points available a turn, major victory to the person who gets the most VPs, otherwise a minor victory is determined on kill points. So Chris, over to you. Yeah, so again, this is this scenario will favor horde armies um, because of that 20 plus. Um, unit count trumping the objectives um, it also favours again armies that use tunnelling or lightning strike um, or summoning any of those armies that have the 9 inch setup restriction essentially because rather than the old border war where you were sideways um, in a normal deployment there wasn't much depth um, behind your opponents or, and your own behind the home objectives Whereas now, because it's deeper, a lot of people just see that as kind of dead wasted space because you don't actually have to deploy at the back. Most people have deployed towards the front of their deployment zone, obviously because they want to get onto those side objectives that are worth two points each. But it means that you have a longer distance between your home objective and the back board edge. So it's easier for those kind of nine inch away setup armies to exploit that space and get behind you. And that's particularly dangerous to let that happen in this scenario because obviously that home objective is worth four points. So it can be a bit kind of counterintuitive to, um, or it can feel counterintuitive to leave models so far back from objectives. But if you don't, then, and you're placing an army that can teleport or do that sort of movement mechanic, it can leave you open to suddenly them gaining a four point lead. Um, on you by just snagging your home objective, um, particularly as a lot of players tend to go for the side objectives, just think I'll leave a little bit on my own, but I'll hold the side because they'll have to deal with the side objectives before they come for my own. So I don't need to have many bodies on my own objective. So it's often, I guess, a bit under-defended. 
So that's that's something that any of those Alpha Strike armies, um, tunneling armies, will be looking to exploit. Yeah, and it's the as a Sylvaneth player, that was certainly one of the things that I how I used to play Border War was you would go, you'd hold your home objective with some dryads, and you'd push up on both sides, capture those uh, two central objectives as early as possible, and then just hold on to them. Um, that will now now harder, as you say, if you're playing against an army that's got the ability to come in behind you. So that's something that you need to be considering when you are at the tabletop and learning what your opponent's army will do. Ask those questions, learn what abilities that they have got to come behind you if you don't know, um, and think about that in terms of your deployment and setup and how you play the game. I suppose the other consequence of turning the board sideways, as it were, and playing lengthways, is that if you've got a resilient horde army and you're facing an army which doesn't have flight or doesn't have the ability to come in behind you, then because the board is narrower, narrower it's easier for you to put sort of waves and lines of chaff off um, to hold those central objectives and prevent the enemy from coming through to your home objective. Yeah, exactly. Um, units of 30 Volkai Berserkers um, tunneling up in a big long line, for example, and as you say, just creating walls um, and just pushing your opponent back um, while you stand other units on your home, on your side. Um, it's something that, as you say, if you're not, if you don't have flight or you don't have the ability to teleport or keep units deployed in reserve so that you can pop them up somewhere else where a space presents itself or the ability to summon a unit late game that you need to you need to be aware of that you can very easily get zoned out of those objectives just by just chaff walls. Um, things like Skaven clan rats are actually brilliant in this scenario because there's lots of them quite cheaply. Um, they're obviously going to trump um, in terms of scoring objectives if they're 20 plus. That is really easy actually to do on the home objective now because a lot of people won't leave 20 models on their home objective. So if you can run Skaven, uh, so Clan Rats or Skinks retreating from combat is another big one where a unit of 40 Skinks is only 200 points. 40 is a huge unit that you're not going to want to have to kill, but you go, you have to kill 21 Skinks from that unit to stop it charging, using that charge to essentially bounce itself off towards your back objective use this 8-inch move, just get one model within 6 and get 4 points from a charge that they didn't want to do any damage with um, or even you charging them they can retreat, use that move snag objectives off you um, and Skaven have the ability to retreat and charge, so there's a very good Skaven player in the scene locally here that will very often use clan rats make a charge, retreat from that and run behind that unit into the unit behind it just across the board very, very, very quickly. And now that those 20-plus units trump, it's something that is very strong for scoring these objectives and getting very high scores in this scenario. Yeah, that's certainly the case. Um, that's, I hadn't actually thought through the, the consequences of that uh, charge and then retreat mechanic of those very large units. And that 20-plus trump, that home objective, really does change the dynamic of this scenario. Um, 
just trying to think if you're playing against a heavy death summoning build then their ability to summon in a large unit of uh, zombies or skeletons or whatever behind your lines is also magnified in um, threatening that home objective yeah i actually think when people start if people are using a bit more death certainly it's something that i have planned zombies um are incredible for this because of their um shambling horde um mergeability because you can have 10 zombies 10 zombies 10 zombies as your three battle line units run them up the board one on each of the side objectives one kind of edging towards your opponent's um home objective but not necessarily getting close to it your opponent probably isn't too worried because it's only 10 or even if you had 20 they can kill zombies very very easily but because you can summon zombies and you can summon them in 20s quite easily for a low casting value yes those summoned zombies have to be placed nine inches away but the initial zombies that are already on the board or if you summon a unit on your first turn headed towards your opponent and then you leave a tail snaking back towards your deployment zone that is nine inches or more away from any of enemy models. You can then summon more zombies in your hero phase within one inch of that existing unit towards the back, merge them into one unit. Suddenly you've got a model from that unit that was there last turn that's now part of a 20 plus unit and you sneak it and you take the objective from them. I was just, uh, that slight pause was I was just trying to work through the mental map of uh, <laughs> how that would look on the tabletop. Um, but again, yes, so that that ability to turn a non-threatening unit into a very threatening 20-plus unit um, in an awkward position is something that a lot of players wouldn't expect. Certainly wouldn't expect to see that, I don't think. Yeah, it's just the uh, fun little tips and tips and tricks, um, the hidden gems that I think are within death um, and summoning in general for these. Um, a lot of these scenarios, um, because I guess that is one overarching change um, that is probably worth touching on, is a lot more of the scenarios under the old General's Handbook could be you could win the major from turn three onwards. There was kind of that instant win criteria. Whereas with these new scenarios, only one of them, which is Total Conquest, you can actually immediately end the game from turn three. All of the others, you score points each turn and they go up to who has the most points by the end of the fifth turn or the end of the game if you never get to five turns. So that actually means that summoning armies that can hold troops back in reserve become much more valuable. Yeah, they certainly do. Um, I think you meant Knife to the Heart rather than Total Conquest. Um, as Sorry, being the one where you can yeah. capture from, get a major from the third battle round. Um, but oh yes, uh, uh, local death player Tim Lind is, uh, I'm sure, happy when he will be listening to this um, about all the shenanigans that he'll be able to get up to with his death force. Very good. Okay, I think we'll move on to the penultimate scenario, Star Strike. Okay, so Star Trek is similar to Gift from the Heavens under GHB 2017. So we have meteors deploying from the heavens um, during the course of the game. So your objectives come into the game as you're playing. So what are we dealing with? We've got regular deployment, 12 inches away from enemy territory, standard 24-inch gap. 
What we have though in terms of objectives is that we have one objective which will land on the center line at the start of the second battle round before priority. So it's roll the dice, on the one to two it'll be left hand side, three to four it'll be in the center, and five to six on the right hand side. So for effectively the first battle round, you don't know where that center um, objective will. You don't know where any of the objectives are going to be in terms of the order that they're placed, except that you know that there's going to be one in each of the thirds of the board. Um, so you will find that at the beginning of the second battle round, an objective will appear that's either 18 inches from one side of the board or in the center of the board. At the start of the third battle round, for full priority roll again, two more objectives land. This time you will have one on the center line of each of the, um, each of the territories randomized as before. So in terms of capturing, the capturing happens at the end of any turn. More models within three inches, that's the objective, um, that's the objective capturing criteria. And again, a unit can only contribute towards scoring a single objective each turn. VP scoring, points are scored per controlled objective equal to the current battle round. So if it's battle round three, then you get three VPs per objective. So I don't think we've touched on this before, but these scenarios where you have escalating victory points as the game goes on, either because a hero has held it for longer or because we're now getting to a later battle round, are completely dependent on players playing quickly and fairly so that you get through the five battle rounds um, and the full dynamics of the scenario can play out because the game can change very quickly if those objectives are then captured by someone in the fourth and fifth battle rounds and going to be scoring a whole load of victory points. So simply in terms of winning, major victory for the most VPs and a minor win on kill points if you're tied on objectives. So Chris, uh, what do we need to consider? So with the randomness of the objectives coming down, obviously you have some slight knowledge. Um, you know that the first one will be somewhere on the centre line of the board. So you need to be ready to push towards the middle. Um, and then you know um, on the third battle round that obviously you're going to get one somewhere in your deployment zone and your opponent's going to get one somewhere in theirs. So you know roughly to kind of where you should be and by what time you know you can probably afford to use anything that is potentially a ranged threat or something that's weaker but can do a lot of damage but doesn't have any resilience, you probably want to use that early on because a lot of people won't necessarily do much with their first turn because they might just wait to see where the meteor is. However, because, um, which is certainly what a lot of people used to do under the old gift of the heavens, but with this one, because the first objective comes down in the middle of the board, I think you're much better off pushing up um, straight away because you know that you're at some point and the first objective that will appear will be in that in the middle of the board. So if you're just holding back in your territory, you're just kind of letting your opponent have a, an easier grab at getting two points when it comes down. Um, it will favour teleporting armies um, and or fast armies, summoning armies again um, in those early turns because they are the armies that are able to react quickly to um, board placement and where they need to be. Um, based on the objectives, which is obviously key for this scenario where your objectives are somewhat random. 
So summoning armies in particular can be really strong if you win the priority for turn two, because if you have a caster in range, your opponent hasn't necessarily pushed up um, to block you off from nine inches from where that objective lands. You can summon a unit in a ring, providing again, obviously, with the caveat, your opponent doesn't have any flying units. Um, you can summon a unit in a ring, keeping the backs of your bases within three, the fronts outside of three, and you know that you'll get two points straight away and you'll probably stop your opponent from taking that off you. Um, so even if that's just 10 zombies, again, that's 60 points that can snag you two VP straight away, um, and it just helps give you a lead early on. However, you also need resilience in your army, so you either need resilient troops um, if they're going to be on the battle from um, on the battlefield from the start of the game. So again, plague bearers, things like that, are, are brilliant for this. Um, or again, an army that relies on summoning should do well because you can keep back a portion of your army um, until the end of the game, where you can then just summon units. Um, obviously. You need to keep your summoners alive, though, so that is one thing you need to bear in mind. So if you are playing for late-game summoning, you need to have a resilient caster. So someone like Nagash should actually be really good in this scenario because of his ability to cast multiple spells if you have a wide rate, a wide pool of units to choose your summon unit from. You, he can cast eight, potentially up to eight spells a turn, so he could quite easily summon three different units onto three objectives on the fifth turn if you've been able to kill your opponent or they're not in the correct positions on the board. So again, summoning is really strong for the late game and the late game is more important for this scenario because as you said, you score points equal to the number of back rounds. So you really, both players should be playing as much as they can to be fair to one another to get to those fifth turns because if someone has a fast but weak army that excels early game, it's not fair if the game ends at turn three. Whereas someone else that might be able to outlast them, they they might have to go down in points through through the first three turns, but kill their way through the army. Once they've killed that army, they're free to just snag twelve and then fifteen points in turns four and five, which should actually win them the game. So it's um it's really key to, to kind of try and get to that fifth turn. Yes, certainly. It's just uh, simple fairness. Uh, the other thing to think about is, with these kinds of scenarios is, as you say, the the you might want to go first early um, so that you can play for a later double turn. So rather than the sort of usual trope of give the opponent the first turn if you've got the ability to, you may want to take first turn, push up for the central objective, which you know is going to be there, um, and then take advantage of a double turn from two into three to have the reaction of um, or the ability to react where the second round of objectives come down. Yeah, it's something that I would always, any of the scenarios where you could auto win it from turn three under the old General's Handbook, for example, I would always want to go first in those because I would want my opponent to have their double turn out of the way from one to two and I would be playing on trying to get it from two to three and just auto win the game. So this is essentially, it's not quite the same because you don't auto win, but what it's doing is it's making sure you have your double turn after your opponent has had theirs, which in this scenario where the objectives are worth more late game, 
it's stronger to have your double turn later on in the game. Um, and if your opponent does get get their double turn immediately from one into two, and you win the priority for round three, I would even consider giving it to my opponent then and just holding on to that double turn for those later turns for four and five because it can be such a massive point swing in one go. Um, even just round five, if you're able to score all three objectives, 15 points is a, is a huge amount of points. Yeah, so it's, it's very much a case of going, well, look, I'm, all you're going to do is you're just going to try and disrupt, you're going to try and delay, you're going to try and keep your key pieces alive so that you can have a very, very late play for those objective points. Now, one of the things you talked of quite a bit about summoning um, and the summoning builds that can play into this, um, were there some options available for Seraphon builds that are favourable in this scenario? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be dependent on list design, but Seraphon, with their Lords of Space and Time allegiance ability, um, can be very strong in this scenario now because they that ability allows a unit, potentially two, depending on if you select a command trait for a slan as your general, um, to teleport um, on a two plus, essentially, um, each of your hero phases. So if you're able to just pick up your units from anywhere on the board and place them anywhere on the board outside of nine inches of an enemy, um, on a six, they're able to move again. On a one, they can't do it, but you have a five out of six chance of being able to just pick up a unit from anywhere and drop it where you need to grab an objective. So they can be very strong for that. And also the other strength that Seraphon can have is if they're playing the Shadow Strike formation, which is probably one of the most popular Seraphon formations, a unit of six or potentially even nine Ripodactyls waiting in the sky for that late game is very, very strong because anyone that's played Ripodactyls knows that unless you've got a unit that has kind of two up saves, re-rolling ones, they will, through sheer amount of attacks, kill most units in the game. Certainly nine Ripodactyls will do an awful amount of damage. So they're able to drop down because they can delay that unit coming down until, say, turn four, drop them exactly where they know the objective is, they only have to drop three inches away, so they're pretty much guaranteed the charge. Again, they can fly, so if someone tries to create a ring, they can fly over it to get within range of that objective. They can completely kill a unit, and then they move 14 inches, so they can potentially fly from that objective to the next objective um, if you place them on the correct side of that objective. For example, if you had, say, the centre objective landed in the centre of the board, and then one of the other objectives landed. If it landed to the left, then you want to position that unit when it attacks on the left, but with the unit on the side of the centre, so that if you attack the left and you kill it, you take that objective and then you fly and you attack the middle objective on the next turn and you score points in both turns. Yeah, no, there's um, that would certainly be a great play if you were able to get it off. Cool, okay. It's getting fairly late here. Let's um, wrap up with the final scenario, uh, the much-talked-about Scorched Earth. So Scorched Earth has a regular deployment zone, regular, regular deployment distance, 12 inches away from enemy territory, 24 inches apart. And in terms of objectives, Scorched Earth has six objectives, three on the centre line of each deployment zone, one central, and two 12 inches in from the board edge. So 
In terms of capturing, controlling at the end of any turn, simply more models within three inches. And again, the restriction on a unit only contributing towards scoring a single objective each turn. In terms of VP scoring, you get one point for, um, scored per controlled objective at the end of each player turn. But, and this is a cool dynamic that's been introduced, uh, you can raise or destroy an objective held in the enemy territory, so just the three in the enemy territory, and get D3 points instead of one point. So it adds another decision factor that you need to take into account. In terms of achieving the victory, major victory if you get the most VPs, minor win on kill points if you're tied on objective points. Now, the only thing that I'm going to say before throwing over to Chris about this is that already this is the scenario that we see people starting to house rule or put twists on it in tournament packs. So something to be aware of, something to consider when you're looking at a tournament pack. Has there been a change made to this scenario? Is there a restriction on when objectives can be raised? Um, and this is, and I'll leave Chris to go into it in a bit more detail, but this is to sort of counteract those a few particular builds which have the ability to flood across the board, destroy your objectives in one go, um, and then effectively win the game from turn one. So it's definitely worth having a look at the pack to see whether or not um, there's been a change made to this scenario or not. So Chris, do you want to um, touch on Scorched Earth and the things that players need to be aware of? Yeah, sure. So I'll cover the uh, the infamous, well now infamous list, um, I guess that you're talking about that has kind of raised these potential issues. Um, is the murder host generally for the um, corn? Um, because it's essentially three or even more units of thirty blood letters that can move two d six inches before the game, two d six inches in their first movement phase, and then charge and they just run onto each objective, kill anything that's there from Morphin Wounds um, and all of their attacks, outnumber, raise all three objectives on turn one, score those points, and then not only does your opponent have to chew through those 90, 120, however many blood letters are there before they can even start pushing towards yours, they're not scoring any points for holding their own, and you're also going to have probably at least one model on each of your own home objectives so on that turn one you're scoring 3d3 plus the three that you already have um, and it pretty much if you do face that can make it almost impossible to win um, from that however there's it's not all doom and gloom if you do come up against it there are certain builds and um, certain play styles as well even if you don't necessarily have that army that may help um, at least give you a, a more of a fighting chance so um, obviously if you do come up against the murder host, most of them don't tend to be one drop. So if you have a one drop army, then you potentially can just make the choice to go first and you just use your units, even if you're throwing them away to die. They're probably going to die anyway when you get charged by the murder host. You just push forwards and you keep those blood letters away from three inches of your objectives, certainly for a turn or two. And it just gives you more of a fighting chance. Um, of losing, of not losing your objectives on turn one and essentially the game. So if, if you have a one drop, you push forwards. Um, even if it's in walls, just push forwards and try and contain, I guess, all those blood letters. 
The great example um, of that recently was Gary Percival and KO. So Caradron Overlords can two-drop Clown Car, can drop away from the murder host, take first turn, blow away half the murder host um, with a sheer amount of firepower, charge in, and then not only can uh, the Overlords take one of the objectives on the murder host side, because of the mobility of those balloon boys, the uh, Sky Wardens and the engine riggers, they're going to be challenging another murder host objective at the same time in that first turn. Yeah, no, that was that was a great explanation that um, Gary did in, in that show about one of the ways of taking on an army that most people have considered an auto win in this scenario. Um, Zinch, um, uh, another army that I think have a chance against them if you draw the murder host. I guess most of these comparisons are coming up against the murder host as the way to beat it because it has early on, I guess, been kind of established as probably one of the naturally most strong armies in this scenario. So, but Zinch can counter it um, with horror splitting potentially. Um, if you think generally those units of blood letters are going to be spread out in a line because they want to get all of their attacks in because they're on 32 mil bases, they can't fight over one another. So in order to kind of get all those attacks to kill the units completely, they'll probably be spread in a long line, which means that not all of the unit is obviously going to be within three inches. And it, remember, it's most models within three. So if you have 10 pink horrors in a line holding your three objectives, for example, and you've saved reinforcement points in order to split them, if those horrors get wiped out, which I would expect 99% of the time that they would get wiped out, at the end of the phase, you can split those pink horrors down into 20 blue horrors. And with those blue horrors, obviously, you just have to place them within six of that pink horror unit. So you can focus where you put those models back so that you get as many as possible within three inches. And because of the 25 mil bases and the fact that you are just specifically putting model bases within three of an objective rather than in a long line and fighting, you can probably actually deny the blood letters the ability to outnumber you and therefore they will not score your objective and then they're sitting there for you to counterpunch and potentially, usually the murder host, if it can, it will always go first. So they are always then potentially ready for you to double turn them and actually blue horrors, things like that, they have a lot of shooting. So although it's not great, bloodletters only have five up saves. So potentially by you having lots and lots of horrors, splitting, denying them your objective from turn one, you can then deal with them, effectively having muted their kind of game one, uh, turn one game win. Now, that's a great bit of advice. So there's, there's not only list design ways of dealing with this scenario and dealing with the murder host in this scenario, there are also clever ways of thinking about uh, model placement and how you set up your units. Um, one of the other ways that is often the approach in terms of setup for dealing with that is creating that additional layer amount of distance between your army uh, sitting back as far as you can while still holding the objectives to make it harder for the murder host to come across the board at, uh, at you. Do you want to just explain and tease that out a bit further? Yeah, sure. So if you just think about, you have a 24-inch deployment zone, so um, or gap between your deployment zones, and those objectives are sitting on that 12-inch line from each player's backboard edge, essentially. So a murder host, the closest they can be 
with those units of blood letters will be 24 inches away from your objective. Now, obviously, they only need to be within three inches. So essentially, they need to be able to move 22 inches, turn one, um, to be in range of that objective. So they, as we said before the start of the game, they get a 2d6 inch move, then they get a 2d6 inch move in the next turn, and then they could also run. This is, they can run or they could charge. So generally, you've made 4d6 inch move plus another 2d6 for a charge, because most people will have put their units probably on their 12 inch line to try and hold their own objective. So you've given them 6d6 and they only really need to move 21 inches. So that's quite likely that that's going to happen. However, if you actually put your units nowhere near your lines, which can again be, it can be risky and you are essentially probably just giving them one or two, one or two of your objectives, turn one. However, if you're faced with this scenario, you're probably going to lose them anyway, even if your models stand there. So not only are you losing your objectives, but you're also losing quite a lot of your models. So actually, if you pretty much backboard edge your army and you remove the ability of the blood letters to use the charge mechanic to gain that additional movement to get to your objectives, then your opponent only gets to roll a run if they notice that that's what you're doing. So you remove one of those D6 from their effective threat range. So the average move on 5D6 plus 6 inch move, 23 inches. And remember, we said they needed to move 22 inches. So all it takes is a couple of those rolls to be a little below average. And they might find themselves just an inch or two short of actually being within range of your objectives to burn them. And then you haven't lost any of your models in your army. So you can fight back with your entire army and you haven't lost your objective. So it's something that any army can potentially do. And remembering that they're trying to do it with three different units. So the chances that at least one of those three units will fail that 23-inch move, that 22-inch move that they need, is actually higher than you would expect. So you might actually only lose two objectives instead of all three, or you might get lucky and lose none, um, or some combination in between. But then it lets you have more of your army to fight back and at least try. Yeah, that's, I, th I think that's the best and most widely applicable advice for people trying to play Scorched Earth against a murder host um, or similar Alpha Strike army is denying them that free movement and going, right, well, we know how this game, what their ploy is, how this is going to work. So we're going to take that away from them and we're just going to change the dynamics. We're going to go, well, right, we'll, we'll take our luck on the dice. Um, and we might find ourselves in a favourable position on one or two of our objectives, and then we can concentrate our fire back um, as and where needed in order to either protect or remain to protect our remaining objectives or start putting pressure on uh, the murder host's own home objectives. Yeah, and I th I think the other great thing about that is if people start doing that, then people playing murder hosts their natural reaction potentially will be, okay, I might add some blood stokers to my list to get plus three to my runs and charge rolls to help. They might go, right, they're moving further back, so I need to be able to move further in order to grab these objectives. So I'll put this model in that gives me an extra three inches on my runs and my charges. But as soon as they start doing that, because they're not in the formation, they start actually being counterintuitive for the 
murder host player to put into their army because they start increasing the number of drops. And remember, any army that outdrops the murder host has the advantage because they can push forwards and stop the murder host to turn one charge anyway. So it'll be quite an interesting dynamic to see if people backboard edge more, kind of what that forces on murder host builds. Yeah, it's great that interplay that you get uh, within the game of Age of Sigmar and Warhammer bef um, before it in terms of that sort of evolution between poacher and gamekeeper um, as you react to one tactic, it then forces a change in the opposing list design, which then um, progresses the game and changes the meta that we see. Um, so no, it will be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, as as you say, it's it's great that actually, although a lot of people have come out and initially said, oh, this scenario is not great because this happened and it's an auto win, I don't actually think it's been too bad because the murder host also struggles. It will struggle in other scenarios because of the fact that it's a combat-oriented um, army. So if it came up against, just to go back, as we were talking about, potentially fire slayers being strong in, uh, duality of death, where they tunnel up to runes, um smiths, protected by Volkite Berserkers. A murder host will actually really struggle against that because it has no way of sniping out those runesmiths. So, in terms of balance across five scenarios, yes, this scenario might be very strong for a murder host, but the other scenarios won't necessarily. So, it's not necessarily a really bad thing for an army to have a very strong scenario because, as you say, this also continues to make the meta shift, which is what keeps the game interesting. Yeah, and thinking about the uh, the Fire Slayers and the rise of Fire Slayers that we're seeing is that, of course, Fire Slayers have got the protection against mortal wounds, so um, they're less worried by the exploding attacks of blood letters um, and have just got that additional level of resilience built in. actually fire slayers are one of those armies where it's quite easy for them to be one drop so um they actually i think it's quite clear that the scenarios in a lot of them we've sort of said oh fire slayers are strong here fire slayers are strong here so i actually think that's really good because there's obviously been a bit of a push from gw to make fire slayers more um to see them a bit more to make them a bit more competitive and points and also obviously their pricing strategy um it's great to see lots more Fire Slayer armies kind of out on the tabletops. And it hasn't just been the points change that have benefited them. The way these new scenarios works, actually Fire Slayers, the way their army mechanic works, is strong in a lot of these scenarios. Yeah, as we all know, there's, there's a number of ways, a number of mechanics and inputs which go into how effective an army plays and it's not simply points it's battlefield roles it's access to battalions it's number of drops it's the dynamics as we've said of the scenarios so and the releases of other armies so the, the sort of ecosystem or meta of armies that um, they're potentially going to face in terms of their opponents um, so a whole range of those things are currently um, coming up well for fire slayers which is good because it's one of the sort of new AOS themed armies. Uh, yes, they're hairy, fiery dwarves, um, but they've got a whole background around them, which is distinctly AOS. Um, so it's good to see those new armies doing well, performing as they should do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more.
Very good. Okay. Um, any more final gems of wisdom um, before we sign off out of here? Um, not really specific to scenarios. There's a couple of things that I've been um, asking before in terms of little hidden gems of units um, potentially out there. Um, I think Griffounds. Oh, um, say, feel free to give one. <laughs> yeah, um, I think Griffounds um, were previously underutilized. I know a lot of people thought, um, myself included, to be honest, that they were too easy to. Um, kind of deny their usefulness. However, I actually think Griffhound now with the rise of Zinch and how often we're saying Zinch is really strong because of the horror splitting, the way the interaction of that with intermingling a few Griffhounds amongst the Stormcast army or any Order army for that matter is actually, I think, very strong because any Order army can ally in Stormcast, so they can ally in Griffhounds. They're only 40 points each. And for anyone that doesn't know, the the reason that I'm touting Griffhounds is because whenever an enemy unit sets up within 10 inches of a Griffhound, you roll 2d6, and any friendly unit within that range of the Griffhound can immediately shoot the unit that was set up. There's no limit to how many times in a turn that any of those um, thusly affected units can shoot. So if you have a number of Griffhounds intermingled between your army and you're playing a Zinch army that starts splitting horrors, they're setting up those new horrors and they have to set them up within six of the existing unit. And if you've got Griffhounds near in that combat, they will be within ten. So the second they spend those reinforcement points to split into four, six horrors, for example, any of your units that have range, so all of your adjudicators, anything, your prosecutors, any or any ranged army skinks, uh, free guild, hang gunners, any order unit that's got a ranged attack that's within 2d6, so roughly 7 inches of your griffhand, can immediately shoot those splitting horrors. You'll probably kill them. So not only do they not get to do their sneaky shenanigans in terms of trying to claim an objective or block your charges, you're also using up their reinforcement points and essentially wasting them. Um, and your Griffhounds can also be used when you're not playing things like that, just as cheap chaff, to just where you need one model to just hold an objective. They move very quickly, nine-inch moves, so they can just quickly grab a, a random meteor if we're talking Star Strike. Um, for 40 points, I think they're a, a little gem that aren't being used enough. No, certainly. Well, when you put it that way, they certainly are. I was just thinking the horror of the amount of shooting uh, that you'd be able to get out of an optimized free guild force uh, with some griffhounds liberally sprayed around. Um, it, it also hits that point of, we always go, well, look, how do you deal with horror splitting? And the armies that do well against horror splitting are the ones that can dish out damage in multiple phases. So when they set up the new units, you then have got another way to do damage output in another phase, which is then going to clear it out before it gets round to um, when you need to move or when you need to charge or when you need to pile in. You've cleared out those additional splitting horrors before you need to take that step. Yeah. Um, there was just one other as well. Is I think uh, Ether Wings with Vanguard um, Raptors with long strikes or hurricane crossbows, I think have a place. They are actually a good counter to the murder host as well, um, because you don't need to go first 
to use them. Again, they're a Stormcast unit, so they can be allied into any Order unit. Um, and the reason for that is the Aether Wing, the Aether Wings um, have a rule that if they're within 12 inches of any Vanguard Raptors um, at the start of your opponent's charge phase, they can make a charge move. So you can potentially, if you're faced with that Bloodletter Horde that's three inches away, ready to charge you uh, to take your objective, you just counter charge them with some Aether Wings, hold them up on the edge, and they actually never get to get your objective because you outnumber them with your normal guys standing around it. And those Aether Wings are only 60 points. Um, so they can be a really useful counter to things that rely on those kind of Alpha Strikes or charges and things like that. Yeah, no, that's certainly uh, certainly good advice. Who was I see? I saw, um, I think it was Kai Baker on Twitter has been doing a lot recently um, with Ether Wings as part of a Vanguard force um, uh, and a full Vanguard. So uh, sort of three units of five Vanguard Hunters, Neve, Black Talon, um, Palidors, um, and then some... I can't even remember whether it was uh, long strikes or hurricanes, um, but it was all based around the knee, the um, blight war battalion um, with some extra supporting characters. Um, so there's some interesting things in there, certainly, and some new stormcast options um, available. So I'm looking forward to um, trying out some of those. Yeah, I, I, I love the stormcast, and I, I love that you can ally them in with anything order so if there's just one or two units that you like they all generally have a very specific purpose that they're built for um and i think it's a really kind of smart move um on games workshop part with this whole allies system um it lets people just pop in the odd thing here or there and then before you know it you have a full stormcast army uh yes that's exactly happened to me <laughs> um <laughs> those those Firestorm uh, city boxes were a very easy way to pick up uh, large amounts of a Stormcast army. Very good. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, I've certainly lost, uh, learnt a lot of sort of hidden gems and key tips and tactics. Um, talking through these scenarios with you, it's uh, we often go through the scenarios as part of list building and deal with them at a high level. But it's worth taking them in isolation, doing that deep dive, thinking about how it impacts those decisions about when you take double turns, how you set up your models, where you put them, and the play on the tabletop. It's a really good opportunity to consider them each in detail. So thank you very much for coming on and giving your time.